It's important to start strong and finish strong. Join our discussion on how to end the year well and plan for the best possible new year in your organization. Pursuing God-honoring responsible stewardship in governance, financial accountability, and fundraising. Welcome to the Excellence in Ministry podcast from ECFA. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. This is Vana Lau from ECFA. We're so grateful that you've chosen to spend a few minutes with us today. I'm joined by John Van Drunen, Executive Vice President of ECFA, and Michael Martin, Vice President also at ECFA. Today is a little different from our typical format. We're going to welcome you into a conversation on annual issues related to governance, fundraising, and finance. There's so many things for people to keep in mind in an already busy time of year that we thought it might be helpful to just talk through some of the key activities related to year-end and beginning-of-the-year planning. So time always goes really fast on these podcasts. I think we should just jump in and get started. Uh, John, I'm going to start it off with you. What's something you think is important for people to consider near year end? Thanks, Vanna. You know, hands down, one of the top issues I get each year is around timing of gifts. And for which year does a gift uh, count? Is it the, the prior year? Is it the current year? Um, and so one of the one of the things that uh, listeners need to understand is they they have to be very careful in terms of what type of gift we're talking about to determine what is the the application. The general rule is that a gift is deductible in the year that it's received, uh, and then there's some exceptions to those to that general rule. One of the most common exceptions is for checks. It's the delivered when mailed rule. And that's why you see everyone um, asking, you know, when was the, the contribution postmarked? Was it postmarked in by, you know, December 31st? Um, or was it postmarked January 2nd, for example? Um, and so in, when dealing with checks, that becomes very important. Um, now, the rule as it relates to credit cards is different. It's the year in which the gift was processed. And so uh, as, your, as your organization may be receiving credit card processing instructions by mail, um, there, there's no indication that you can go with the delivered when mailed rule there. Uh, instead, the, the IRS publication indicates that you have to go with when the credit card is, is charged or processed. And so that's uh, a frequent uh, situation that comes up. And, and this is an integrity issue. Um, I ran into a, a gentleman a few years back who indicated he had he had no problem with postmarks any longer. And that was because he could take um, unpostmarked mail to his local post office and they would apply whatever postmark he needed on there. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and I, that was my reaction as well. I was, I, I'm pretty sure that's a, a felony of some sort. Um, and uh, so have to be very, very careful. You know, even though there may be significant pressure from givers uh, for getting a contribution in a certain year, uh, need to make sure that as an organization, you're doing the right thing and taking the, the right road on that. And so one of the recipes uh, to, to good um, donor relations in this area is clear communication upfront in advance and let uh, supporters know what your policy is and whether you have a cutoff date uh, for uh, counting contributions in a certain year. Excellent. Well, how about you, Michael? Have you got a year-end tip for us? 
I do, but I was going to say, now I know why John picked that one on timing is because he could give the lawyerly answer of, it depends. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was sitting there thinking with all the rules and exceptions to the rules and all that. It was the perfect setup And for it him. was pointed out by another attorney. I just want that noted as well. It depends. It depends. <laughs> That's the best. It's our favorite answer. It is. But to answer your question about another year-end tip, I would say that now uh, housing allowance, That's uh, it's it's got to be one of those things that's on your year-end checklist. If you are in a ministry that has folks that are on staff who do meet the qualifications of a minister in the eyes of uh, the tax law um, and that they're receiving a housing allowance, now, I think this uh, podcast is going to be going out before the end of the year, December. Now is the time when your board really needs to approve those designations of housing uh, allowance from salary for 2019. And one of the key reasons for that is one of the requirements for a valid housing allowance under the tax law is that it has to be made prospectively. Like, in other words, it can't be an after-the-fact designation. So I would say be sure that that is on your end-of-year uh, checklist, but Maybe another just practical tip beyond just the approval for 2019 is, this is just a pointer here, include a safety net in that housing allowance when it is approved by the board. Something like, you know, that the designation of X, you know, whatever dollars it is per month as a housing allowance shall apply until otherwise provided. Because then that'll help you in the scenario of what if you do miss it one year, uh, it gives you a little bit of a safety net there. I, I can't imagine it ever happened that a church board or nonprofit board would, would fail to remember to pass a housing allowance resolution at year end. Well, no sarcasm there or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it does happen. And I think it's good that there are ways that we can, you know, protect the the ministers. I mean, it's not... It, it's something that we can do as ministry leaders to make sure that we're taking care of of our people. Exactly. The, the really, uh, the burden for that falls on us. So just be sure that's on your checklist. Sounds good. Well, speaking of checklists, the CPA and me can't help but jump in there. I love checklists. Uh, I would say the one that I would throw out is to have a closing checklist. Uh, certainly that's something that you can use throughout the year. There may be things on that that are monthly, like bank reconciliations, um, donor tie, so tying the donor system to the general ledger. Uh, there may be things on there that are quarterly, like doing your 941s and tying that out to wages. But certainly there are a number of things that annually need to be done. And just having that checklist, again, like you were saying with kind of the, the catch-all in the housing allowance provision, having that checklist is a good reminder to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks because it's easy to have that happen, especially if they're things that we only do once a year. Right. Uh, so, you know, those annual things might be recording depreciation. Certainly, you know, W-2s and 1099s aren't at the end of the year, but they're an annual thing. We're only doing those at the start of the year. And by start of the year this year, we mean that. Uh, those deadlines now are January. So some of us that have been involved in this for years kind of have that February mindset for some of those things, but that's January this year. So we've got to really be mindful of that. So I would encourage people to think about what are those things that we do on a consistent basis, uh, monthly, quarterly, or annually have a checklist for those. Not only is it a help to us, but you know, if we fill another role in the organization and someone comes behind us or, you know, we move on, uh, the person who comes behind us will probably rise up and call us blessed because of that. <laughs> uh, but it also would include, you know, who prepared it 
as well as who reviewed it. So it it really becomes an internal control. And, you know, the accountant and me can't help but jump in and about internal <laughs> controls and throw them in there somewhere. So having that can be really helpful. Plus, it just feels really good to check things off ah, your list, yes. right? I think we're all like that. That's right. And and I'd say sometimes we can um, fall into a, a spirit of complacency because that's the way we've always done it. And um, organizations are not static. Um, the dynamic, we're new, adding new programs, growing or, or changing the dynamics of our staffing. And so um, having that opportunity to just walk back through everything and look at it in that lens of, um, and maybe even asking occasionally, why do we do it this way, um, can be really healthy for an organization. Well, and in light of things changing, one of the other things that I would suggest doing at the end of the year is to look at your chart of accounts. You know, I, I can tell you that I have been in organizations where I got a chart of accounts listing or a trial balance report, and there were accounts that said do not use that had funds posted to them, right? So our chart of accounts really can get out of date. Um, if we're adding new programs, sometimes we've just, we've got this makeshift chart of accounts that we've dealt with. And so if we look at that annually and really make sure that that's giving us the best reporting, because the chart of accounts really feeds into our financial reporting. And we want to make sure that we're capturing everything in the best way that we can. Any other thoughts either of you would have on kind of some year-end type things? Yeah, I might just add another one in here. Um, you know, this is a good time for an organization to uh, kind of walk through, and you're talking about checklists, um, especially on the financial side. I, I might just look at it from a legal compliance side. And good time to review, are you up to date in all your charitable solicitation registrations? Are there new states that you've maybe expanded um, your solicitations that may require a charitable solicitation registration? Um, we've got a, a reference back to a, our podcast episode in August of the Excellence in Ministry podcast that talks um, was dedicated to the charitable solicitation registration requirements and a really good resource as you're as you're working through that. Um, beyond that, you know, the, maybe looking at uh, what all states are you required to register, either um, uh, renew registration as a corporation um, or to be registered as a foreign corporation. Um, have you gone through and uh, completed all your annual uh, renewal filings? Um, because if you haven't. Your uh, incorporation status uh, could be revoked, um, which will um, could easily raise complications during uh, potential litigation and expose people to liability. Um, and uh, it's generally a, a pretty easy thing to reverse if that's happened, uh, but certainly want to walk through that uh, with your legal advisors. Uh, so a good opportunity just to review through some of those annual periodic uh, legal compliance routines as well. Thinking about the state registration that you were just talking about, not the charitable solicitation, but kind of the corporate registration, for some of the listeners that may be new in their position that are saying, I have no idea where we might be uh, in that, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, so almost every state has a um, business section, um, business services uh, section of their applicable agency that's overseeing uh, corporate registration. Um, it, for most states, that's the Secretary of State. 
Um, but it's not always titled that from state to state. Um, and so you can look there and, and confirm quickly, uh, generally at no cost, uh, whether a certain corporate name is um, in um, ha- when they've last renewed and whether they're uh, in good standing in that state. Uh, and if they're not, um, there's usually an opportunity for you to file uh, an amendment uh, or a renewal right there on the website. Excellent. Well, I might piggyback off of that with yes. just another legal uh, related uh, year-end sort of thing. I brought two attorneys to you. What do I expect here? <laughs> Come on. Exactly. And that is uh, the HR files. And uh, is there anything in the office that gets dustier than someone's job description? I don't <laughs> probably think probably not. Usually not. <laughs> probably not. So uh, I just think that end of year is one of it's it's another one of those good times where you're able to look back on the year and say, okay, based on all the employees that we have, the job descriptions that we have in the HR files, um, are these two things matching up? You know, is what we're saying in someone's uh, you know job description position statement consistent with uh, their duties and couple of reasons for that. Uh, One is just doing so is really important in terms of having that good communication in terms of what are the expectations between the employer, between your ministry uh, and all of your employees. Um, But then beyond that, too, as John alluded to in some of the legal updates, if you ever do fall into a legal dispute, you just want to be really sure that um, those descriptions that you have formally on file are accurate. And then they're also legally compliant with any potential changes that may have taken place within uh, your jurisdiction or, or federally as well. Well, one of the things that I've seen with that, Michael, is I've had people say to me, you know, how many pa- how many people should we have in X department, you know, the accounting department, IT, wherever. And uh, we've talked and said, wow, it seems like, you know, whatever that magic number is, like three people ought to be able to do that. We have three people in there. How come we're struggling? And as they've gone and looked at what their actual duties are that they're doing, they're not doing accounting. They're doing four other departments worth of jobs. And it typically ends up, I think many people that are listening that are in ministry will understand and, and relate to this. But one day we needed someone to do this. And then they did it, and all of a sudden they just routinely did it day after day, and we don't realize how they're spending their time anymore. Um, so I think that's a great tip to just go back annually, look at it, not just what you expect them to do, but really visit with them about how they spend their time. Yeah. Uh, because I think a lot of supervisors end up being surprised at the duties that their staff are performing that they just didn't even realize were there anymore. And I think it also gets you, you know, maybe transitioning a little bit to planning for next year. It gets you started off on a really good foot going forward where you're able to, if there are changes that take place, having those conversations as part of year end reviews and all of that. It also just kind of puts you on a strong foot going forward in the new year. Okay, and I am not an advocate of these job descriptions having one line that just say duties as a sign. (laughs) (laughs) The catch all. (laughs) Right. Awesome. Well, I'm going to talk about planning, but I kind of want to save that maybe as one of the later topics. So I think some other things maybe one of you want to throw out there. Yeah, a question that usually comes up here at year end or during um, uh, certain appreciation months is, 
Um, how do we handle love offerings? Uh, probably more common in the church context, but sometimes uh, occur in the ministry context as well, uh, especially in the missions um, arena. And and that is, um, you know, two questions usually come up, and, and usually folks think there's a direct correlation between the two questions, uh, but there's not. The first question is, is this gift eligible as a charitable deduction? And the second one is whether a, a love gift is um, uh, subject to uh, taxation, uh, you know, represents income tax to the individual that's receiving it. Um, now, there's nothing in the code that defines a love gift, but the, the way that we're using it is just in the context of um, that a gift that you might give to somebody that you're showing a, a, a sense of appreciation because of the job that they're doing in their ministry, um, whether that's a missionary or it's a pastor, um, you know, sometimes that that will occur. And, you know, we're probably not talking about the $25 Christmas uh, card, uh, gift card uh, that, that you might send, um, but probably more significant gifts uh, in that context, because you might you might argue that there's, uh, you know, gift cards that you're giving to a number of friends uh, that as just uh, part of your Christmas uh, tradition. Uh, but, you know, in this term, you know, usually individuals will think that if something is not treated as a charitable contribution, then it does not represent um, a, a taxable income to the individual receiving it. And that's not the case. There's two different tax analyses, and I won't get into all the details. Thank you. But, but there's two. <laughs> di- yes, yes. You can you can thank our, our listeners. Thank uh, thank me as well. Um, but there's two different uh, d- you know analyses that you an organ uh, individual needs to walk through to determine the deductibility and the taxability. And frequently, what ends up happening is the worst possible tax situation. That is where a, a transaction is is not um, eligible as a charitable contribution deduction, and it represents taxable income to the recipient. So if you're giving a, a gift to a pastor or to a missionary because of the work that they're doing, um, it could be viewed as um, you know payment for services. Um, and so you, you want to be mindful of that and just take the high road um, so it doesn't put the, the recipient in a potential hard spot uh, in that way. And John, I guess maybe a follow-up question on that too is, you know, most of the folks listening are, uh, you know, on staff with the organization. So as part of their year end, what role do they have in potentially communicating with folks on staff about if you've received a love offering or what kind of follow-up would be required on the part of the ministry, if any? Yeah, and that's, you know, part of the complexity is uh, different organizations have different policies around these, um, you know, some organizations will, re- will require, um, you know, the, the recipients to report uh, any gifts that they've received from supporters, especially those that are on deputized support, um, <clears throat> where, whereas other organizations may help facilitate some of these gifts. And so, you know, clearly if an organization is uh, facilitating anything along these lines, organization needs to look long and hard um, to determine uh, whether these are taxable or not. And um, the, 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 you know, probably the posture that one should take is treat it as taxable unless there's clearly evidence that it's not taxable. And that's going to be the rare situation. Because that's how the IRS is going to view that's it, That's right? how the IRS <laughs> is going to view it. Absolutely. Well, 
related to, and this is probably a, a loose relationship, but it's a topic that I think is important, so I'm going to make the transition, and that would be, um, you know, from employees and gifts and things like that, there can be related party transactions that we're entering into. Uh, conflicts of interest can come up. Michael, just walk us through maybe some of the things that ministries need to be thinking about related to that on an annual basis. Absolutely. No, end of year is really a great time for folks to be thinking about conflicts of interest. I don't think a lot of people like to think about <laughs> conflicts of interest at all. In fact, I think we did an ECFA survey several years ago where we asked how many organizations had a conflict of interest policy or, um, you know, are they aware of that? And just the, the numbers of uh, organizations that were out there that said, uh, either we don't have a conflict of interest policy at all, um, or we're not sure, we haven't referenced in a while. And so there was this article run in Christianity Today about it where uh, the title was Disinterest in Conflicts of Interest. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it's one of the favorite things to be talking about on the podcast, but it's so important. And those that are on who are seasoned ministry leaders, I mean, you know, the purpose of having a conflict of interest policy is really, Vaughn, as you were alluding to, in a related party transaction scenario or uh, a scenario where the organization might be entering into some type of transaction with either a board member, a key staff member, or a volunteer um, who really has, uh, you know, another interest as well. I mean, these are the potential situations where uh, a conflict of interest comes up. And so it's really important to have that policy in place so that as a ministry, you're sure that decisions are being made in the best interest um, of the ministry. And having a policy really helps walk you through what that process looks like. But for purposes of the podcast, and I think the timing aspect of this, it's not enough to just have a policy, but you've got to make sure that it's being utilized and it's actually being used. So dust, get the dust off of the policy. And part of that is actually having what we recommend, uh, you know, at least an annual conflict of interest questionnaire that should really be completed by all of those people who are in positions of influence like board members and key staff. And that form is really used for them to disclose any potential conflicts of interest that they might have. Um, and it's good to do that. You know, we would say, hey, why not let it be at your first board meeting of the year where everybody kind of comes in and, uh, you know, updates that information because things change and potential conflicts change. So it's a good thing just to kind of put on your calendar as a reminder for that. Um, so that would just be another recommendation in terms of making sure uh, conflicts of interest are monitored and those questionnaires are used. Yeah, and just a note on that, Michael, you know, one of the things uh, I think everybody tends to focus on is <clears throat> how a conflict of interest policy protects the organization. Um, and that's true. It, it serves a certain role in protecting the interests of the organization, the charity. Um, but it also protects the individuals involved because Absolutely. a properly applied conflict of interest policy says, listen, um, you know, the, those that are have an interest in this um, in this transaction, in this arrangement are not going to be a part of the discussions can be made by independent individuals. So if anybody questions it later on and, and they've followed that process, um, the person that has an interest can simply point back to that, that independent board, that independent body that made the decision. You know, I think one of the biggest risks our ministries face today is public perception and right. just that reputational risk. And that, to me, is what is at the heart of this, that if we're doing this well, questions are going to come up. You know, people are going to make accusations at some point in time. There's probably not a ministry here that hasn't had to deal with something related to that. And this is an area that if we've got a good conflict of interest policy, we're following up on those questionnaires, uh, 
that when the situation arises, the sooner you can squelch that because you can take them back to documented policies that are carried out and followed through on. Uh, just, I think, in my mind anyway, the less kind of damage that's going to be done. Uh, but there are there are certain things that are important to it. You know, those questionnaires. I had a CFO one time that I asked, you know, do you do annual questionnaires? He was super proud. He said, yep, we do them every year. Make sure that the board and leadership sign off on them. I said, great. Can I take a look at them? And uh, he looked at me and he said he, he started to laugh. And he realized that they collected them every year. The president's secretary did and put them in a drawer. No one looked at them. They were actually <laughs> completed, but right. no one followed up to look at them to make sure is there any, you know, is there any dis uh, discussion that needs to take place? And so make sure that you do it well. You know, don't just I guess that's one of the boxes. You don't want to just check off uh, that you've collected them, but that they've been reviewed and that they're handled properly. And I've said for years related party transactions. Michael, you started off by saying people kind of shy away from it. Mm -hmm. Related party transactions aren't inherently bad. I think we need to get over that perception that this is, you know, because a conflict of interest sounds so bad. It sounds so <laughs> negative. A related party transaction can really be in the best interest of the yeah, ministry right. if it's handled properly. And I think that's what we're encouraging. And I might, I might just add that a related party transaction technically may or may not be a conflict of interest. Yes. Um, because if handled properly, it is not a conflict of interest and because uh, there's no conflict uh, in the person making the decision. And so I think a, a real important distinction uh, when we use those, those terms. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I might great. sneak in one more thing. You can and do that. And that is, too, on a practical note, we actually have a sample conflict of interest policy and questionnaire also uh, available on the website. So just to be important to take advantage of those opportunities if your organization doesn't either have a policy or the questionnaire. It's a great reminder. Well, one of the things that I wanted to hit on before we wrapped up our conversation today is just we've talked a lot about some of the year end things and we've transitioned a little bit to the start of the new year. But I would just say that this is such a great time to to really think about some planning for 2019 and beyond. You know, we're really good at New Year's resolutions, right? And maybe this is one of those, but hopefully we'll follow through on it because good planning really requires a lot less time than the lack of planning. You know, if we're just constantly putting out fires, we're not putting our effort into those things that are the most critical. And regardless of what your role is in the organization, if it's an administrative role, you know, those most critical planning things might be, do we need to do a benefits overhaul? Yeah. Like, when's the last time we really looked at the benefits we're offering? You know, are they benefits that our staff really want? You know, are there additional benefits they might be interested in that we could provide at a low cost? Um, have we shopped some of our other benefits to make sure that we're getting the best value? You know, some of the administrative people might be looking at the policy manual. You know, when's the last time that you sat down with an outside expert maybe and went through the employee manual and made sure that it was current and up to date? You know, John, you were talking about uh, just all of the different state requirements. I mean, when you think about that from an employee standpoint, those things change in so many states on a pretty frequent basis. So I would say those are a couple of things. When you're in the ministry side of things, maybe the leadership, that kind of CEO, COO role, looking at just what are some of the large projects we want to take on? And even if those are three and five years down the road, 
still, we've got to be doing things now to start prepping and being ready. We're not just going to magically be ready for those things in three to five years. So what can we be doing in the coming 12 months that would relate to that? Or even I would encourage people, we're looking at 2019 as that year of excellence and governance. And what are the things that we can do with the board agendas in 2019 to make those more effective at guiding our ministry? Do we want to uh, incorporate some board training in there? We've got a number of resources that could be helpful in that, but just would encourage the listeners to really think about one or two maybe major projects, maybe there's something you've been putting off or maybe something that would really help your ministry go to the next level and start to calendar that because it's not going to find its way on there with the spare time that you have, right? <laughs> right. Very much. And um, <clears throat> in in terms of um, things to be um, just looking forward to, as Vana mentioned, um, the the 2019 is going to be the year of excellence and governance. Um, and so you're going to be seeing further information from ECFA uh, available at ecfa.org um, for different forums and uh, workshops and governance um, webinars. Uh, so be looking for that and uh, hope you each have a blessed Christmas. Well, this has been fun to spend some time together and has, just yeah. visit about some of these most important annual topics. I hope the listeners have enjoyed this as much as I have. Uh, we've mentioned several resources throughout this conversation, and I would encourage everyone to go to ecfa.org and look at the many things that are available to them that are related to so many of the topics that we've covered today. We appreciate each of the listeners and hope that the time you invested in listening to this podcast will be a real blessing to your ministry and the role you play. Until next time, God bless you, and we look forward to being with you again soon on another Excellence in Ministry podcast.